a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 96 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. They can also be found on iTunes and Stitcher and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Erleman, and with me like a pathogen growing in your air vents, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan B. Butler. Was that a crack at my asthma, son? <laughs> yeah, or mine. <laughs> I, I think I've got some camper going. That's actually what it was that caused Vader to need the breather. It had nothing to do with having his lungs seared. It was after they were seared, he was on a he was in that uh, uh, medical facility. It was all dank and dark, and they just hadn't cleaned the vents in ages. <laughs> yeah. He's like, it was all your fault if you'd have just taken me to proper facilities. <laughs> well, you know, Lord Vader, we made Grievous in here, and he had a bit of a sniffle at the time. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we look at John Jackson Miller's Knights of the Old Republic Volume 3, Days of Fear, Knights of Anger, issues 13 through 18 in Dark Horse Comics hit series. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. You know, going back to these, I actually find that they're pretty good. I mean, we're used to the idea a lot of times that John Jackson Miller's work is, again, I've always made that comparison to J. Michael Straczynski doing Babylon 5, where he'll do a solid story, but he'll lay down little uh, threads that eventually are going to be pulled together to make a bigger point or for a, a bigger climax much later down the road. And this is where a lot of threads that had been being laid, I don't want to say they all necessarily come together because it's not that... The whole days, nights thing is the end of a buildup of the story, so much as it's where the story really kind of kicks into high gear, and a lot of those threads become more apparent, I'd say. I guess if you were going to compare this to Babylon 5, uh, this is sort of the season 2 or season 3, early season 3 stuff. It's the pre-Shadow War stuff, but everything is starting to come together, and you're able to see that there are threads that have been laid, especially if at this point... You've read the series before, and you're going back to reread it. This is the whole, um, they do the whole fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering thing. So we have days, D-A-Y-S of fear, nights, N-I-G-H-T-S of anger, and then the other half of this is going to be days of hate, D-A-Z-E, and nights, K-N-I-G-H-T-S of suffering. And uh, it really is sort of three issue arcs. But those four three-issue arcs together make a much bigger 12-issue arc that really sets us up in a lot of ways for what's coming with Vector and then on its way to 
vindication. Having read this before, knowing, for instance, uh, who it is that one of these characters really is, as opposed to who he's posing as, uh, a lot of stuff makes more sense as we're going through and reading this. And seeing some of the uh, the hints dropped here about the background for Jeriel, a.k.a. Adessa. They actually mention her real name in here once. Um, knowing what's coming later in the series and some of those final arcs of Knights of the Old Republic, uh, I think that gives this a little bit more weight than it might have had originally. So definitely one that I would recommend going back and reading if you have already read the series, if you haven't read it again since the original time it was released, because now you're going to get much more out of it. Uh, and, of course, you can go online and read that Secret Journal of Dr. Demigal, which is that cool little uh, journal series that John Jackson Miller put up. You can use that to track the adventures of Demigol throughout the series and his activities, and there are certainly several of them that interweave with this very uh, uh, arc that we're looking at this time, or I guess this time and next time, with days this time, nights next time. Yeah, you know, and it's cool. We also not just get, uh, you know, Odessa's name. We also get uh, Gorham uh, Vandrake, which turns out to be Camper. We get his backstory. Uh, I really enjoyed this, and I'm I'm with you in the aspect of you get a lot more out of the reread. Um, it's fun to just grab these every now and again and just and just peruse through them again. Uh, I I forgot, you know, it'd been so long that I'd forgotten that this trade didn't wrap up the whole story. That the story kept going. I I remember that this was that moment where I could not get enough of this series. I was just like, just eager at the bit at the comic store, waiting for the next issue to come out, wanting to know where they were going next. Uh, so it's really nice to be able to sit down and get to reread it all with the the knowledge that I had before. But to sit down and do it all at once and just not have to wait, you know, and get that satisfaction. You know, we get other new characters that come in. A lot of side characters, a lot of the side background stuff going on. There's a little bits with Revan. Uh, you kind of see what's kind of going on with the Mandalorian fleet. A lot of what's going on with the actual fleet, uh, with the Admiral, with uh, uh, good old... Uh, Karth Onassi. Yeah, Cartho Nassi, uh, which which okay, you know, we've recently we've been kind of uh, more critical on the art, um, and and I've just been looking back, going over this and and trying to look at it with a new set of eyes, and I have always loved the art style of the Kotor series, but when I was going back over this, I noticed that there's a lot of bouncing back and forth between artists in this, and we'll we'll get it more into this as we go, but there were times where where Cartho Nassi's character really would change. I mean, sometimes he looked a lot like an older version of Zane Carrick and other times he looked like how I recognized him. And so sometimes the art style that I liked would show the characters in ways that I didn't quite like. And then it was kind of opposite. And I'll, I'll get more into that as we break down each individual episode. But uh, it, it was just, it was just one of those things where on the reread, it was really throwing me off, but I don't remember it throwing me off so much the first time. I was I was definitely more critical of the art this time around, so that was that was kind of interesting. Um, and I also I just I like the backgrounds. There's a lot of really cool background information going on. I mean, not only of the inside of the ships of the planets and things like that. Uh, there's a lot of attention to detail there. I mean, you you mentioned the fact that that John Jackson Miller is like uh, the Babylon Five creator, and absolutely, I mean. John Jackson Miller has always had that aspect of just interlacing everything in such a way that it's so much fun. And I am already like remembering things from the end of this series that stuff is being shown right now. Like, like you said, you know, with Demigol and stuff, it's, it's, that's the amazing part is that if you go and you see the secret journal and you go back and you read all this stuff, there's that aspect of what's going on with his character. Plus, you know, the aspect of what his character is thinking of, you know, Odessa. 
Jarrell's character because, you know, there's a history there. And that I find on the reread is a very, very interesting aspect of it because none of it is spoken. None of it's mentioned. It's not there. But if you know about what's coming down the road, you can get some insight of those characters. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, no wonder he wants her. And and I like that. I mean, there, there, there's a cool play up on that. Uh, there is a little bit of over-sexualization, but I, I question whether or not it, it's it's not needed, I guess I should say. I, I think in this aspect, like, it, it plays well to the characters that are in the scenes. Uh, in this case, Lord Adaska, he seems like a creepy pervert, and I think they played it well. Uh, you know, he's he's got this level of evil to him that just, you know, has always intrigued me. And they answer the question of why... Jarrell looks different than other Arcanians. And so that was also a fun aspect too, as well as the Mandalorian angle. You have the uh, Neo Crusader armor starting to take effect. And so Mandalorians are starting to look a little more uniform as well, even though you have Mandalorians like Roland here who don't. And they address that as well. And all really cool things. And that's also something John Jackson Miller has been very good at doing is taking these little tidbits and feeding them to you in little morselets that are just so delicious. They're like, oh, okay, I can understand this. Thank you, John. Although really, it's it's going to be interesting as we talk about this because this really isn't an entire arc. I mean, if we look at uh, Days of Anger or Days of Fear, I always get these confused. Days of Fear, Nights of Anger as two separate episodes here. Uh, we're going to be leaving this for a little bit as we get towards our 100th episode. We'll come back to it as we slowly build up to talking about Vector and whether or not it was as effective as it should have been and that sort of thing. Um, because these two stories being part of a four mini arc Maxi arc, or whatever you want to call it, I think maxi arc was another of those phrases uh, Straczynski used to use when talking about rising stars, um, it really doesn't answer all of the questions. Um, in fact, there's one big one left dangling that seems like it's so simple. Uh, who is it that, that uh, Lord Adasco wants Roland Dyer to contact on his behalf? Uh, we don't even get an answer to that at the end of these two. Uh, we do very early on in the next arc. Um, but it's certainly not going to be something where we have all the answers before we end this bit, which, of course, makes sense if we're dealing with issues, what, 13 through 18 of a very, very large series. We're not even at the halfway point of Knights of the Old Republic yet, technically. Yeah, and that's the other aspect of the trades that I really enjoy. I mean, I mean, the single issues, they work, and they are quite a bit to read. But when you get in the trade, I, that's what I really enjoy because it feels like a novel. I mean, you get all the joy of the art of the comic, but the reading is there. It's not like you're just going to sit down and get this thing read in like 10 minutes. I mean, well, I mean, maybe you could, but not me. I mean, it took me at least a half hour to an hour to really get through it. And a lot of it was just, like I said, absorbing the background detail. There's always so many little things that are there. That's just a lot of fun. Now, consider that your spoiler warning beyonders and sentience of all ages, because here we go. All right. So our story starts with E.G., who is this uh, Duros... Uh, technician guy, he's got these cybernetic implants, uh, kind of reminds me of Lobot, who is <laughs> yeah. he's checking through all these uh, video feeds and such, and he notices when Camper and Jerio were undercover back in Reunion. And in doing so, he recognizes Camper, um, which you know, we don't recognize the significance of just yet, but it's, it's our first introduction to the Arcanian legacy and Lord Adaska, the Arcanian bigwig of, of Adas Corp, uh, looking for Camper. We got the sense that Camper's running from something, as is pretty much everybody else, it seems like, in this series. But now those who have been looking for him have been able to find him, at least temporarily. We then move into uh, Raltir, 
And we see Camper, who is very absent-minded at this point. Um, he's watching a sparring session between Zane and Jeriel. Uh, Jeriel with this cool staff of hers, and Zane with his, of course, yellow-bladed lightsaber. And as they fight, we get a chance to see, A, that Jeriel is increasing in her skills, but B, these Frickite gauntlets, um, these bam braces that uh, have been made for Zane. They basically have this, this metal on them that when hit by a lightsaber blade, they glow blue with like this little bit of, a, of energy going around them, but it blocks a lightsaber blade. Um, and, you know, the obvious response from Zane being, you know, if it stops lightsaber, do you know, you know what this could be worth? To which Camper, who is the one who designed them, says, yep, and that's why it stays right up here pointing at his head. Uh, Only I know how, and then he loses his train of thought. Uh, The idea of this being something that is too dangerous to be allowed into the broader uh, knowledge of the galaxy, which we've seen several times in Star Wars with different things that can be used against lightsabers, with this one just being one of the many types. Uh, But it looks like they're all parting ways. Camper and Jeriel, uh, not realizing, of course, that Roland is, or Demigol slash as Roland, uh, which we don't know yet, is hidden aboard the Last Resort, they're going off on their own way, and then Zane and Griff are going to be going their own way here off of Raltier. Basically, the whole idea being that if they're all on the run, then it doesn't really make sense for them to all be on the run together, because if any one of them gets caught, it can bring trouble down on everybody else. Uh, I, I remember being shocked by this when I first read the series, that they were splitting and going off in different directions. It makes sense, logically, for the story for them to go different directions, but given that they were brought together in that first arc, you got the feeling that these are the characters meant to stay together throughout the series. And instead of having that be the case, we send the characters off in different directions so that different arcs will focus more on one group than others, at least for a while until they're brought together. And that was, you know, I, I don't want to say it was a good or bad choice. I think it serves the story well, but I'd say it was kind of a surprising choice um, given that that's probably not what most readers expected, though it winds up working out very well. Yeah, I, I enjoyed this first scene. Uh, one of the things, though, that, that, like I said, I started looking at the art a little different. Uh, Jarrell's character seems to be like the mighty Morphin Arcanian Ranger. Uh, you know, she... The one thing that seems to be the, the standout in every time she's drawn is that she's sexy. Um, for lack of better terms. I mean, I mean, she's a very attractive character in every aspect she's drawn, but it seems like she's never drawn the same twice. Her face is always just a little different. It's like she represents all types of beautiful women. I mean, and and it's not a bad thing necessarily, but it was something that I noticed on the reread. There's a panel, uh, right before, or should I say right as Zane's walking away, as the ship flies off the last resort with, all of everybody on it except for Zane. And he goes, the force is fine. And he starts walking away and he goes, but I would have preferred some company. And that panel kind of gives you the feeling of what I as the reader felt. You know, it's a, he's very alone. Uh, the loneliness, the despair that kind of comes with it as he's walking off and they're flying away, leaving him all alone. I mean, that, that was a perfect farewell in a sense. And, you know, you do wonder at that moment, like, is that the last that they're ever going to see each other? Because you had that feeling like, you know, there was something more gonna be there and you know if you've read the entire series you know where we're gonna go with that which is fun but again that's why i like coming back to do these rereads if you've never reread any of your star wars comics or books maybe you should try it 
It's a lot more fun than you would think. I, I find that I enjoy most of my Star Wars books and comics more on the rereads. Yeah, we basically are getting, uh, thankfully, only one parting of ways here as opposed to the 800, I believe it was, at the end of Lord of the Rings. Um, so we then pick up with how are Zane and Griff going to move on after their adventures in the previous arcs. And basically, Griff sees the fact that the Mandalorians are uh, uh, attacking and everything as something that is shaking things up, gives them a chance to have some illicit deals going on. Uh, of course, Zane, he expects to be his henchman, essentially, here, uh, as far as any of his movements go. And they're trying to figure out what to do. Um, he's not intending to hide, though, uh, that things shouldn't be slowing down. They should be picking up because of, you know, the money that can be made. So Griff makes this interesting uh, comment. It's kind of, of funny, I guess, um, but it, it leads to an odd moment. Now, understand that the artwork in this is by Dustin Weaver, and Weaver goes for more of a sort of cartoony look. Not cartoony in a bad way, not like a goofy sort of way, um, but cartoony in the sense that you could see this kind of artwork being the artwork that you would see in an actual cartoon. Um, yeah, it's like not, Avengers or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, it reminds me very much of, say, the artwork in um, the 1990s X-Men or, or uh, Spider-Man cartoons. Yeah, um, I can see that. And there's a moment in which Zane is kind of looking with a disapproving look at Griff, and Griff says, <laughs> people get scared, they get stupid. And wherever stupid people are, I want to be there. And then we get a panel where there's nothing said, and there's sort of a zoink kind of look on Zane's face as he looks at the audience he it's breaks the, it's the, the gym yeah it's the jim halpert the office moment dude that's totally what i think of every time he does it and, and he does that quite a bit well just, this was the one that really just kind of had me go wait what um i don't know it, it works in the moment but it's still kind of that same it, it's, it's just not something you see in star wars very much star wars does not have a zach morris type figure um but what they decided to do essentially is they're going to be leaving on a ship and rather than buying a ship, uh, basically Griff has hired a Trandoshan named Slisk to steal a ship and deliver it, and he's paying for the theft and uh, the the delivery as opposed to paying for the actual ship itself. He's managed to work himself a little, uh, a little good bargain there. Uh, I don't know, I think the idea that those two are staying together, it fits, but you gotta kind of sit, sit back and wonder, how is this going to help Zane in terms of clearing his name, or in, ten, in terms of, of sussing out what's going on with the Jedi Covenant and doing all those things that he said he was going to do at the end of commencement. It seems as though, you know, this may take him out of play for a while and keep him safe for a while to be with Griff, but to what extent is this actually going to push anything forward as far as what he wants uh, in his own personal arc? Ooh, you know, I never thought about that for, for Zane. I mean, that that's definitely something to think about. Um, You know... I again getting back to the art. I don't know which version of Zane I like more. If it's if it's Weaver's version or if it's and I believe it's Brian Ching that's doing the other version. Uh, and Ching's version is the kind that, and we'll get more into that as we get into later issues. His is, is the the go to style that I think of when I think of Kotor and when I think of these characters. Uh, his version of Jarrell and his version of Zane. That's how when I close my eyes. I think of them. Although Weavers in this, in this take, I, I don't have a problem with the different look of Zane. Uh, he does do a good job. In fact, and he's, his version is the version of uh, Karthanasi that I really like. Um, I, I'm not so hot on Ching's version. So it, it's, it's funny in that regard that, you know, I've been one, I just, I like what I see. 
Uh, I'm just now getting to the point where I'm starting to recognize each artist's style and of the style, what it is that they draw that I like and dislike the most. Um, so that, that too is something as, as a fan, you know, you can get into, uh, with your comics and stuff. You know, we've been kind of really hitting on the art and stuff like that and being, you know, a little more critical than normal. Um, I, I would say I'm being a little more critical than normal. I used to be pretty loose and loved it all, but you know, we've come down on some of the, the more recent series and stuff for being really gritty and stuff like that. And it made me stop and look back at all the other ones and go, you know, have I just been looking at these with love glasses on, you know, and having a little bromance with my Brian, my Brian Ching action and my John Jackson Miller's awesome script writing. I mean, you know, maybe that was just it. Maybe the story was just so good. I was overlooking all the art. I, I don't know. But on the second read through, I'm definitely noticing the differences more. And where in other comics that kind of throws me off, in this case, it's actually kind of fun to try to figure out which one I like the most because it's not that I hate either one. I, I like both styles. I like things about both styles. There are a couple things. And, and as we get to each one, I'll address them as we go. But I, it's definitely an interesting ride for me in that regard. Um, when Slissick steals the ship, in fact, the, the way he comes crashing in and, and all that, I love it. Uh, Zane goes, I see you didn't hire a pilot. <laughs> you know, the classic banter that goes through this is great. It's got that wrath, uh, race squadron feel to it. Uh, you know, I, I just like that kind of humor. Well, and I like the fact they brought in Slissick because it's like now Griff will have something to do as the story progresses later. Um, as Camper and Jarrell are leaving, though, it's cool because you can see in the background that the fleet's coming. All this Mandalorian invasion is building up. Now, if you've been a fan of KOTOR the era, you know, you know that Revan's going to be going up against the Mandalorians. So, you know, this Mandalorian war is about to be in effect or is already in effect in other parts of the galaxy. So seeing this, this buildup of everything coming on, it's really cool. You know, you got all that stuff that's going on that you've been wondering about, like, hey, shouldn't this have already happened? And I remember when that was going down, I was like, OK, where are we at with KOTOR? You know, because I, I didn't I'm not you, Nathan. I don't have the dates just automatically locked in. You know, I mean, you could tell me the numbers, but that doesn't quite correlate to where it would be in the placement of my mind. So it was like watching the events start to build up and then finally putting those little dots together and seeing the pictures start to unfold. Oh, it's a Neo Crusader armor. It was kind of cool. Now, at least some of those dates weren't even set in stone at this point. I mean, there was stuff that was hinted at within the span of the original KOTOR game. And I think even KOTOR 2, but some of the stuff as far as like exactly when certain events happened and that sort of thing, they were just said to have happened during the Mandalorian War, and then this was a series that finally pinned it all down um, at this point. Uh, just from the standpoint of that scene with them leaving, with Jeriel and Camper taking off right after we hear uh, what the plan is from Griff, we do get a moment of seeing one of these cargo containers open with some red light coming out of it, and... It's funny, being someone who's read this before, my immediate thought was, because I hadn't read this specific story in a while, that that was Roland coming out of the case, and that was not the case here. It's a different individual we're going to see momentarily coming out of that case. So even looking back on it, there's a bit of misdirection there. But we get this moment, uh, of course, where the ship lands, Slisk comes out and is not wanting to actually give the ship to Griff for the fee that it's worth, uh, the fee that they had agreed to, but instead he wants to sell the ship, which is going to be a lot more expensive. So Griff convinces Zane, who of course is not technically a Jedi anymore, he doesn't technically have to follow Jedi training, and and by the way, of course, Jedi can be duplicitous. We saw Qui-Gon trying to pull one over on Watto. You know, Republic credits will do fine. I'm going to screw you on this deal, uh, but that's okay because we're in desperate need. Um, here we have Zane causing a, a some kind of tower thing, some kind of a, a light fixture or whatever, um, to fall down 
allowing... Oh, it's the one that, that Slissick crashed into when he first came down. Right. Allowing Griff to push Slissick out of the way and create a life debt and use that life debt as a way of saying, well, you know, we'll call it even if you come up with a... Uh, if we just say we're fair and square and you just give us the ship, only instead, since this is the first life debt that anyone uh, has had with Slisk, it causes Slisk to say that he has to stay with Griff. So Slisk kind of becomes his Chewbacca in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. Um, his, and, and he's not exactly the, the brightest of the bunch. You know, he's got the whole, you know, I heard it all my life. How did your egg get into the nest, Slisk? Well, I can understand. <laughs> Kids can be cruel. What kids? That was my mother! <laughs> um, I mean, Slisk is is kind of a a I don't know. I've always found it to be so Gomer Pyle. Well, he's kind of a dull character. He's a character that usually, when I think of this series, I don't think of Slisk. But he's going to be there at least for you know the foreseeable future. And this introduction certainly is one that that is memorable. But there are so many characters to keep track of. I think it makes it so that Slisk sometimes gets uh, uh, lost in the shuffle. Mm -hmm. um, but they take off, and as they're taking off, of course, it turns out that. Oh, yeah, the ship that they stole, or that Slisk stole, that was available. It's the Little Bivoli. It is a provision ship. It is a fringer, um, uh, basically a canteen-slash-mess-hall provisioning type of ship for the Republic fleet. So when they leap to their next location, they are expected to be along for the ride. And while this seems like it's, oh, crap, this is not going to be good, what kind of ship do they have now? Now they're stuck with the fleet, blah, blah, blah. It seems like that's a downside. We're going to find that within the span of the next couple of issues, it turns out to be a very good thing for Griff and Zane. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I like the fact that they're introducing... I mean, Slisk, again, he's kind of forgettable, but we need someone other than just Griff and Zane because we've been getting Griff and Zane banter since the beginning. We need to have someone else in there in this mix if they're going to be separated from the other characters to give us more unexpected moments and to give those two someone else to play off of. Especially since at this point, we didn't know where they were going to end up, so we had no sense that Carthonassi was going to enter the picture or anything else that we see in the next couple of issues. Uh, and I will say, because uh, I'm looking at the, the, the next very next page, where we have Camper checking things inside the cargo hold, and then HK-24, not the same assassin droid as in the KOTOR games, but a very similar model, uh, emerging trying to capture Camper because of E.G. seeing him on those screens back on the first couple pages of the issue. Um, we see Jerry coming down to look for him. And one thing I'll say for Dustin Weaver, actually all the artists in this, but it will make, I'll pay special attention to this um, when we get to the second arc, when we get to our next episode, is um, that, yes, the art styles differ in these. We have Dustin Weaver doing the more cartoony type. Uh, the second issue has Brian Ching, Back again, doing the more realistic type that I really, really like for this series. Then we'll be back to Weaver for 15, then back to Ching for 16, and then another new person, uh, Tolabao, for the last two in the second part of this multi-part arc here. Um, but no matter who it is that's drawing it at this point in this series' evolution, thank you, thank you, thank you for not over-sexualizing Jeriel. They draw Jeriel to be, as you said, sort of the sexy figure, but not... Sexy in an overt sort of way. She is simply yeah. an attractive-looking woman, and they draw her as they would draw any other character. They don't do like what we saw with, say, Dark Times, where they heavily over-sexualized Chris Tanzier for no apparent reason. Um, there is nothing about Jeriel in these pages um, except for a couple of choices of outfits 
in the second part of this arc um, that even then aren't played up too much um, that scream anything overtly sexualized about the character. It is a much more respectful thing that these artists are doing, as if, heaven forbid, the characters can carry themselves without needing people to go, <laughs> boobies, as has been the case with some previous artists. Kudos to them. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing about bringing in Slissick's characters, it gives Griff someone to boss around that's not going to stand up to Griff. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, oh, great, now you got now you got two of Griff, to a sense. I mean, it's kind of like the dumb leading the dumber. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love the moment, though, when, when Griff comes into the cockpit. Kid, this ship is a mess! Uh, what? So? Our last one was a mess, too. <laughs> I love the banter between them is great. And so bringing in Slissick, like I said, the Gomer Pyle kind of character that doesn't quite get it. You know, he's just quite there for the ride. Uh, but when Slissick first shows up, that whole scene, the killing part for me, the part that slayed me the most was Zane. All the way through it, Zane. You know, you had the first four panels with the door opening and Slissick sticking his head out, seeing him, yeep, slams the door shut. And then Griff's like banging on the door. All four panels while he's banging on the door. Zane is completely still. It's the same image of Zane repeated over and over again. And he is giving Griff the dirtiest look. And Griff's like, it's me, the Griff. Come on, Slessick, open up. And he's looking over. And, uh, they say he's the best. Well, he's the best of Ralph's here at the moment. It's a seller's market, Zane. What do you want? <laughs> I love their banter. I mean, granted, it's not something that you're going to get all the way throughout the story. But when they're together, it, it's great. Um. You know, I didn't think about, you know, what's in it for Zane. I, I think what's in it for Zane is that I think Zane really gets a kick out of Griff. I mean, as it continues and Slissick comes out and they're talking and, and Griff's trying to get the ship and Slissick's trying to, to renegotiate, Zane's starting to crack up. And then next thing you know, he's dropped down on his knees and he is shaking, quivering, just giggling into his hand. Then he finally is just, <laughs> he's just cracking up. I love it. I mean, these moments are what is cracking me up the most about the way John Jackson Miller brings these moments together. These are the moments that remind me of the witty banter in Race Squadron and stuff like that. That's what I, I really enjoy. And the fact that Little Bavoli is, is the mess ship, I mean, that's just like, could it be any better for Zane? I mean, Zane, who's got this uncanny knack of having good luck, bad luck, being in the right place at the wrong time or the wrong place at the right time. And yet now here he is right smack dab in the middle of the fleet. It's like, oh. Where are we going to go next? Like I said, when I was reading this in single issues, I couldn't wait for the next one. Each one was just putting out something new that was just so exciting. And I was like, where are we going next? Where are we going next? And we get to the end of some of these. There's some huge, huge art panoramic displays of space scenes and really cool stuff. That, that It's just, I really enjoy this stuff. And, and like I said, going back over it, I've always been huge on Ching. But on this reread, I'm really kind of actually kind of softening up to Weaver's stuff a lot. I'm really liking Weaver's attention to detail in this era. Speaking of Ching, that brings us to part two of Days of Fear. We have a, a, a brief scuffle between HK24 uh, and sort of between the HK24 and Jeriel as she tries to, pre, to uh, uh, protect camper she attacks the droid and isn't doing all that much good uh, lb the big load lifter droid of theirs doesn't attack which does some good but not a whole lot he winds up getting severely damaged um by blaster shots from hk24 um but the one who actually saves the day turns out to be at least as far as the characters know roland dyer uh, who we haven't really seen since the flashpoint arc he has been hidden away uh, in a container aboard the last resort since then, except for a few times of stepping out 
while other characters are out of the way, as we learn in the secret journal of Dr. Demigol. Um, he basically says, uh, yeah, you know, I was trying to get out of there, trying to get away from uh, Flashpoint. Uh, I've looked for a chance to shed my armor uh, and leave on your previous stops, but there was almost always someone aboard, and, you know, so I'm uh, sticking around, you know, not really giving them a, a, a true sense of why he's there, because, of course, he's posing <laughs> as Roland Dyer when we know that this is Dr. Demigol. I mean, there's a moment in which, in Flashpoint, um, the character uh, of Roland is trying to keep Demigol in custody, and Demigol uh, turns the tables on him and manages to knock him out, steal the armor, and stick Roland into that armor. And they mention here that Demigol, supposedly, Roland Dyer, the real Roland, is on his way to Coruscant uh, to eventually stand trial. He's a prisoner at this point, and this Roland, this Demigol, uh, just chose not to go. Um, knowing that this character is Demigol in disguise, as opposed to being the actual Roland, changes in a lot of ways the way this plays out, and the way he reacts to Jeriel. Because at this point, uh, and again, we're just spoilerific stuff, um, we, are, we are eventually going to find out who Demigol really is. And Demigol was a scientist uh, who had a role in the earliest days of Jeriel as a character. Um, Jeriel will, in this arc or the next arc, I guess the next arc will mention uh, her real name being Adessa, but she does it outside of Roland slash Demigol's hearing. Um, at this point, Demigol doesn't realize who she is in relation to his own past. Um, he's not going to realize that for a little while yet. Um, he just knows that there's something somewhat different about her. And he's trying to stay around her to figure out what exactly it is uh, and try to learn from her physiology. So it's kind of cool to see this interplay between the two of them as he's trying to cover up who he really is. Um, for instance, he's going to do some medical treatment uh, on Camper and plays it off as if, well, you know, there's only two kinds of Mandalorians. You either learn how to uh, to do what a medic does or you die. So I've got this medical knowledge just that I picked up secondhand. Here, let me help. A good cover for the fact that he actually is sort of a mad scientist himself. I like the way it plays because I think it plays well if you just expect him to be Roland. But it also, if you look for those subtle hints, it plays very well also as a reread knowing who it was he actually is. Uh, obviously, this is something that John Jackson Miller had planned from the get-go. This was not one of these uh, things that we sometimes see with Star Wars and the EU when you've got multiple writers writing stories out of order and somebody decides much later, oh yeah, we're going to turn this character into someone who's part of something much bigger. Uh, yeah, we always intended that. Uh, sure. Like with, say, uh, the Great Heap from the Droids cartoon being an Abominor that was the one that was in the battle with the Silentium, um, which is Vufi Ra's race. And yeah, it was their battle that eventually caused the Yuzhan Vong to go into the galaxy far, far away. Yeah, we always intended that. Uh, no. Um, and they don't claim to have always intended it. It just sort of, it, it makes a bigger tapestry, but it's one that is done kind of haphazardly and on the fly. This has the feel of something planned well in advance. Yeah, and Roland's character showing up, it plays well. I mean... There's just enough question from Jarrell to kind of satisfy the reader's question to kind of, you know, pat you off. You don't realize what's really being shuffled underneath your nose. Uh, I know there were quite a few people out there that figured it out. I didn't figure it out until darn near the episode they actually told you. I mean, at that point, I was like, really? Oh, man, they were right. Uh, but it was one of those fun things. Like, you know, like like we've said, the, the crumbs were laid out well in advance. I mean, if you were really paying attention, you had a sneaking, fulfill, sneaking suspicion something was going on. 
Um, when we get to the next scene, though, you know, before you really break it down, I just I like how it's got like a uh, Yavin Four Temple feel to it. <laughs> I again, I I really like the background. What's going on when I'm reading my comics? I'm always checking that kind of stuff out. You know, if this is uh, where are we at? This isn't Raltier anymore, right? They're switching to a new planet at this point. Uh, but the thing that, that I found was interesting was that they call Carthonassi's character Fleet. Um, and so he gets a new nickname in this. And that, that was an interesting change for me because I wasn't really kind of expecting that. But it fit with the character. So I was okay with that. I was like, okay, so he's got the nickname Fleet now. All right. This is also where I start to have my on the reread a little bit of the issue with Ching's art. Uh, the characterization from here of characters starts to become whitewashed for a better lack of a better term. Um, all the characters start to look like Zane. Uh, the zaning of, or the, or the caracking of the caricatures uh, <laughs> kind of throws me off because, you know, Karth comes down and he just looks like a, a, a more older grizzlier version of Zane uh, the, the other guy that's walking with him kind of looks like an even older version of him. The Admiral looks like a blonde version of him. Then Zane shows up, puts on his little helmet goggle scenario. I mean, they, Ching's chin and face structure. I did not notice it until this reread. Even Jarrell starts to look, they all start to look very similar in face. Uh, and, and that was the first time that I really noticed that. And I think for me, that was the first time that I, I had anything in the in the negative when it came to Ching's art style. And it was really this issue that kind of really started to point that out to me. They all look rather zany. Yeah, exactly. Zany. Um all right, so so we get to it's it's Serico, um, not Sekoro. Uh, and this is something that that threw me off at first, because there are two planets with very similar names here. You have Serico, S-E-R-R-O-C-O. That is the planet in this story. You also have Sekoro, S-E-C-O-R-R-O. It's a swap of where you put the single C and where you put the double R. Sekoro is Lando Calrissian's homeworld, um, where they ah. say that, that a lot of the characters who are of the African-American-looking persuasion, uh, dark-skinned individuals, come from in the Star Wars universe. Um, in this case, it's... Soroko, not Socorro. And I always get those backwards when I'm thinking about this story. It would have made more sense, perhaps, to just pick a different name, but I think he's going off of uh, a, a term used inside one of the games, like a reference made inside one of the games. But yeah, so they wind up getting to these this base on Seraco, uh, where they set up the last resort. And it's I say a base, it's like just a, a field headquarters type thing. Uh, where they set up the last resort, this fringer ship of theirs, this mess hall provision ship, as basically this huge cafeteria-slash-restaurant, uh, the Little Bivoli, and they are making an absolute stinking killing. Because turns out that Slisk is a really good cook. And they're basically just, you know, they are the one place to get decent food on this particular planet for these troops. Um, who include, of course, the newly arrived Carthonassi, who is introduced, of course, as Fleet, so that we don't know who he is yet. So it can be the big, oh, oh my gosh, it's Carthonassi from the video game, woo, kind of moment, um, when we get to the point where he show, he tells who he really is. Uh, which I thought was kind of a nice thing. And we get some great comedic moments here. Again, the, the, the Miller sort of style of comedic moments with Zane. Probably my favorite line from Zane, comedic-wise, 
uh, in the entire series. Some of his best lines from a more serious standpoint were that bit that we read from the end of Commencement. But here we get his, his comment, I'm using the Force to keep from losing my mind. Um, as he's sitting there, you know, in the, the dishwashing area of the little Bivoli. Um, and we get to meet uh, Admiral Saul Kareth of the Courageous. Of course, Kareth being a character that we know from the KOTOR games, uh, where he was working with Malik, Darth Malik at the time. Uh, so we get to see him and his first encounter with Zane. Uh, we see Carthonassi meet up with Zane briefly, where he reveals that he is Lieutenant Carthonassi, and he was recently promoted to Lieutenant, as we learned in the little, oh, what do you call it, the Admiral's List, uh, little in-universe document thing, the official communique from the Republic Navy, at the end of the previous issue. It notes that he has just been promoted to Lieutenant, and we learned a little bit about his character uh, and set up something for later in this arc when they start talking about um, the native culture there, the Starobs. And the fact that the Starobs are a hard-working but somewhat gullible group. And that for a while there, while Carthonassi lived on the planet, and when he was posted here at one point, he used to call down basically tornado warnings and send all the Starobs hiding into the caves that go deep below the surface. Um, just for fun, until he actually met some of them and saw how they lived and, and saw their, their character and realized that, you know, it's not so fun anymore. It's like anyone else, uh, anywhere else in history where you tend to find that people who have any kind of, of dismissal of another race, um, it tends to be a dismissal only when there's ignorance. You know, you tend to dismiss, you know, say we're talking about, uh, 1800s Europeans. Uh, will tend to dismiss the people of, say, India or the people of certain parts of Africa um, that they're taking over because they simply don't want to recognize them as individuals. They want what they want, and anyone else is just kind of a side note. But then once you get to know people who actually live there, get to know them as individuals, not as simply a blanket concept of a species, you start to realize, you know, hey, people are all people no matter what background we're from, and some of that individual respect comes in, like you wind up getting... Uh, you know, in the 1800s where you've got people who were English, who were working towards the freedom, say, of India um, from English occupation. I mean, granted, they were not the majority part of that particular movement, but you have that happening. Uh, you have people like uh, F.W. de Klerk in South Africa working with Nelson Mandela in trying to get rid of apartheid. Um, you reach a point where people start to re recognize that um, it's about individuals and it's about equality and that, that's, that's, your biology doesn't really mean a whole hell of a lot in the grand scheme of things. And it's nice to see a character in Star Wars fall into that. It makes Karth, I think, a lot more human in that he will do kind of the, uh, 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 you know, the frat boy type thing. He'll do the, the insensitive type of thing only when he finally has his eyes open to see that change. And this will be a, a, a character trait of him that will help us later in this art to see a lot of the stairs manage to survive what's coming. Um, he even goes so far when, uh, when Zane gives some food, uh, that Griff is carrying to one of the Starobs that's working with them, uh, Karth pays not just for his own lunch, um, but pays for the Starobs lunch too. And granted, this is all somewhat lost in the fact that the big holy crap moments of the conversation are, hey, that it's Karth Onassi, and also that he says that, hey, the Mandalorians are supposed to be there tomorrow. Um, but, those are the bookends of this scene. The, the humanity of the moment, with Karth talking about the Starobs, 
I think is much more impactful just as a reader to me than the plot points that bookend the thing. See, and I, I came away from it from Zane's perspective because this is a moment where the Jedi in him just doesn't let go. I mean, as they're having their conversation, he's looking around. He goes, aren't you guys setting up awfully close to the cities? Oh, you mean the Streb cities? The stone things? Yeah, they belong to the Streb. Those tall guys over there, it's their planet. And, you know, that's when Zane walks over and, and stops the guy from cleaning up, takes his hand and, and literally walks him over to Griff, takes the plate, and gives him the plate. And he's like, it's too bad you can't do something for these people. You know, I mean, I mean, he's seeing the people suffering and wanting to do more for him. And so seeing that aspect of, you know, Zane's character, the Jedi in him coming forward, that is also fun. But yeah, like you said, you know, that's where he when he says tomorrow after uh, Karth tells him about it, he's like, tomorrow. You're like, oh, boy. And he goes back. and He's like, we got to go. You know, I, I like how that plays out. I mean. You know, when Zane's sitting there in the kitchen and he's doing that force meditation that you were talking about, you know, getting back into that question you asked earlier, you know, what's in this for Zane? I really think that Zane thinks that Griff is going to keep him off the radar, you know, because he goes, this is crazy. We shouldn't be here. Someone will recognize us. And Griff even at one point even says, you know, his becoming wanted was the best thing ever, that that that, that notoriety has helped him with business more than anything else and that he wanted to be wanted. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't think Zane actually thought that through. <laughs> that brings us, of course, to the big uh, conversations and vision at the end of this issue. Um, Zane goes to Griff basically saying, hey, we need to get the hell out of here because uh, the Mandalorians are coming. It's a war zone. We need to get out of there. But, of course, you know, Griff is thinking in terms of simply, you know, the money that they're making and how he really doesn't want to leave. Because they're making money hand over fist here. And Zane, Zane actually asked the question that you had proposed earlier, too. <laughs> How am I ever going to clear our names if we keep drifting from scam to scam? Exactly. Uh, but he winds up having a vision. He's sitting down, uh, just kind of like feeling sorry for himself and frustrated. You know, what am I doing here? And as he's sitting there, he gets a vision through the Force. Uh, and he makes an interesting point later on that visions through the Force... When you're trying to basically force them to happen, they tend to be wrong. You tend to be seeing one of many possible futures, and there's no way to tell what is necessarily going to happen. That's why the Jedi Covenant trying to use the, the Force to see the future is leading them to make bad decisions. In this case, it's the Force giving it to him, and it's going to be likely accurate, because it's what the Force wants him to know, perhaps to save lives. He basically has a vision in which he hears, and perhaps sees, um, the, a conversation going on between Mandalore, Mandalore the Ultimate, the leader of the Mandalorian forces, and another Mandalorian about basically the fact that, you know, it's defense without honor is what the Republic is doing. They've got their bases right there next to the stair of cities, as if somehow the fact that there are innocents nearby are going to stop the Mandalorians. And he says, essentially, let them burn. Let's, let's show them what these defenses actually mean, which means a lot of innocent civilians dying. And then we get Zane essentially... Uh, within this vision, because the, the the conversational parts we just have while we're looking at Zane's face, we don't know if he's seeing anything or just hearing it, but then we get a vision of the cities being bombarded, blasted, destroyed from orbit, and basically just Zane there amidst the firestorm. Um, basically the idea, and it, it's kind of an odd thing, it's, it's the idea that the Mandalorians are about to wipe out things, and they're going to use nuclear weapons to do it, although many of the, I mean, just from a historical standpoint, Aside from the big flash in the first couple of panels of his vision, it really doesn't look like nuclear weapons at all. 
I think that's because if it was a nuclear weapon, the bright flash and everything probably wouldn't have made for as cool of visuals. But it's definitely the idea of massive destruction. And he comes back from seeing this vision like, holy crap, we really have to get out of here. He convinces Griff, supposedly, to get out of there. They'll start tearing down the tables and get the heck out of there. You think Griff has a chance with Slisk to be safe, but Zane isn't going to go with them because he has to go talk to Admiral Carath. Basically, that Zane believes that he has been given this warning for a reason, not just to save lives by getting Griff and perhaps others out of there, but he needs to get up there to Carath so the Republic can change its strategy and perhaps manage to get their forces away from the cities, the innocent Starob cities, so that the Mandalorians don't come in and do this massive bombardment based on what they see in terms of the defensive setup, uh, which I thought was good. Then, of course, we just we wrap it up with uh, the Adjudicator, which is uh, sort of a, a freelance security personnel uh, hollow feed article about uh, who's high on the, the the wanted list at the moment. And at the very, very end on the inside back cover, we get a, a preview for the movie The Messengers uh, back when Kristen Stewart knew how to make more than two different types of facial expressions that she apparently lost with Twilight. But I digress. <laughs> well, speaking of digressing, going back to uh, the, the conversation with uh, Karth and Zane here, you know, talk about arrogance of the Republic. You know, they he goes, tomorrow, Zane says, and then Kareth goes, I wouldn't worry much. They'll have to get past the Admiral first, and this won't be a surprise attack like before. So they're anticipating all this. He goes, and if they do land, they'd be smartest to try the planes on the other side of the continent and engage us somewhere in the middle. Besides, it's like you say, they come here, there's a good chance of wrecking the cities. Mandy's don't like to spoil the spoils of war. And, you know, so so there you have Admiral Karath's point of view as told through fleet you know that that that's you know by putting their stuff right on top of that city well they'll be defensive but the vision shows us that no that doesn't happen it, it instead kind of ticks off the mandalorians and and that's what I, I like he goes he goes i see what they're doing i see a defense without honor agreed is your command what is your command mandalore let them see what such a defense deserves let them burn and that's the surprise. I mean, they, they thought it wasn't going to be a surprise attack, but the thing was, was everything about their defense and the way he came at them was the surprise. And that's where the urgency for, for Zane comes in. It's like, you know, he has that opportunity. Can he get it fixed? But I love how when Griff, you know, he does talk Griff into going, and when he shows up, he's like, wait, what's the smell? And Slissick's like, French Ocean flapcakes. <laughs> he's like, back home, Master Griff, they're not so great. But if you saute them after you load on the fruit, well, try some. And of course, you know, Griff tries some and he goes, okay, maybe we'll leave after the breakfast rush. No sense letting this product go to waste. I mean, it's like, Slissix doesn't take much to, to appeal to the greed in Griff. That's right. And that's the first scene of part three. So moving us into part three, um, we basically we have Griff who has said that he and Slissix are going to leave. But because of those flat cakes, uh, because of how much money they stand to make, Griff just will not leave. He's like, ah, we'll leave after breakfast. And we'll eventually find that, ah, we'll leave after lunch. And he keeps putting it off, knowing the danger that Zane has talked about, but he's more focused on what he can get out of it for him. Uh, for Zane's part, he hides aboard the little ship, going back to the Courageous, so that he can get back and warn uh, Kareth. And he is discovered, pretty easily, by uh, Carthonasi, who is the single pilot of this small little vessel, and he tells Carth exactly what's going on. You know, 
Uh, when the sun sets on the camp on Camp Three tonight, the Mandalorians will arrive, and they'll destroy every settlement on the planet out of disdain for our strategy of putting our defenses right next to the cities. Karth uh, is kind of like, yeah, right, you're crazy, you're out of your mind. Until Zane's able to prove that yes, he is a Jedi or was a Jedi, as the case may be, because he's able to yank Karth's blaster into his hand using the Force. Um, so Karth is willing to take him, as if there's not a whole lot of choice, uh, to take him up there to the courageous so that he can meet with um, Kara. So now Karth takes a much more prominent place in the story, not just as someone who's bringing information that Zane happens to meet in the previous issue. Now Karth is there with Zane for part of the ride here. And I found that very uh, welcome because mm-hmm. we haven't really seen that much in the series yet as far as seeing characters from the video games actively participating. It's mostly been brief glimpses, say, of Revan, or a brief glimpse of Squint, and then Squint is off on his own way. It's more like encounters with the characters, as opposed to the characters actively being part of our core group for a particular part of the story, not not our core group of protagonists, or, or antagonists, for that matter, as part of the story. Yeah, and, well, and also the other thing about it is, like, as they're getting to leave, you know, he's contacting the base, he's like, that's the last of the loads, Camp 3 Command, I'll give you regards to the courageous, say hi to the Mandalorian armies for me. Heard you gave one of the newbies a fright about, right? Heard you gave one of the newbies a fright here yesterday, Fleet. How about buzzing a few of the stair buildings on the way out? Guys, guys, that was the old Carson Assey you're talking about. Admiral Karath made Admiral. He's gonna take me under his wing. It'll be by the book from now on. And, and again, that, that's another bit of that character development. You know, you, you did know this character from the game. You have some aspect of him, but now you know that while he did just get promoted, there is a side of him that he's trying to put away. He's trying to become more responsible. And so I think that Zane's going to try to appeal to that. And I like how, you know, it's not just that he's parked on the ground and, and Zane shows up. No, he's already in flight and going up into orbit when he notices that Zane's on there. But this is that panel that I said I'd get back to you later. This is where Carthonassi looks like Carthonassi. Uh, Weaver does a much better job of capturing Carth than Ching does. And, and I never really, Notice that until this last reread. Um, and that's where, again, I, 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 I used to not really care for Weaver's style. I like Ching's more, but I'm, I'm more open to it now. It's, it's kind of interesting in that regard. So I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, but when he pulls that blaster, I love the look on, on Onasi's face. <laughs> I don't know why. It just cracks me up. Like he's got the eyebrow raised. He's got a little bit of shock. I don't know. It's a classic moment. I, and I just, it, it, it's that moment, like the, the holding of the breath before all the attack goes down. Because for me, I've been waiting for this Mandalorian war to kick off. And it's starting to build up. We're starting to see it. And now you know Zane's with the fleet. You know he's had the vision. He knows it's going to happen by sunset. What's the Admiral going to think? And so, again, you know, when you're reading it from the single issues, you're just like, whoa, what's next? What next? What next? From the trade paperback, it's just one big good ride. Good fun. that moves us up to the courageous now and rather than accepting zane's warning we get the somewhat unexpected twist that Kareth has been paying attention to all the wanted information about various criminals and spies and such and because of zane's proximity to events on say flashpoint and elsewhere um they believe that zane is a mandalorian spy so rather than being willing to listen to his warnings they arrest Zane immediately as a spy, and Karth doesn't really know Zane, so it's not that Karth is just going to stand up and stick up for him. He's like, hey, you know, don't ask me, this is above my pay grade. We just met, 
you know, he told me he was, you know, with the Jedi Crusaders, which is not exactly true, um, but that he's a Jedi. And, you know, it, Zane is trying his best to try to figure out, you know, what is it that we can do? Um, how can I convince them? He wants to get a squint of the Jedi Crusaders to be someone, uh, Alex Quinguargesimus, um, to be the one to step in and say something on his behalf. But, of course, all he knows is squint. And just knowing that name isn't going to do them a whole heck of a lot of good, at least not at this point. Um, so rather than heeding his warning, it's the typical Zane Carrick luck in that basically he tries to do a good thing and it turns out poorly. It's almost like the only time things really work out for Zane is when it happens oftentimes uh, by accident. And by the time that, uh, you know, as they're trying to get in touch with the Jedi and get in touch with others um, to try to verify whether or not Zane is telling the truth about anything, uh, the Mandalorians show up. There is no time. And as the Mandalorians arrive, uh, we get that moment of them firing their nuclear weapons. Uh, and of course, you know, at first it's the, oh, here they are. It's, you know, it's time for a battle. Whoop-de-doo. Uh, and then they realize, wait, wait. Um, we detect multiple warheads on each with a radioactive signature. They're nuclear, Admiral. And this is when Zane is realizing, you know, no! And they're binging up the shields and all. Only, of course, it's not meant for them. Missiles are tracking around Courageous. Repeat, around Courageous. Then we're aimed at the fleet. They're heading for... And then, you know, all the missiles, of course, zip around the Courageous because they're on a locked-on course to destroy Camp 3 and the other camps on the surface, exactly as Zane's vision had predicted. Um, you see that arrogance of the, the Republic command structure in not listening to Zane, um... It, see that sort of falling apart, the arrogance and the, the um, their confidence in their strategy starting to fall apart as exactly what Zane said was going to happen starts to happen. And at this point, we know that Griff and Slisk are right down there still on the surface because they didn't leave until after the lunch rush because of the money that there was to be made. Well, and a, a great moment with, with Zane when he comes running up as as Onasi gets back and he's like, I'm sorry, I'm late. And he sees that everything's going nuts and Zane comes running up. The people, the people. It's like, Oh man, that, that was a powerful moment. You know, like I said, I was dialing into Zane. And so you have that really cool kind of Battlestar Galactica moment as all the nukes are going off and you get, uh, you know, Revan and Darth Malik, although he's not Darth Malik yet, but you have the feeling like, Oh wait, this guy kind of looks like Darth Malik. Cause he's wearing the Darth Malik armor that you're going to kind of see later. Uh, and he's already got the shaved bald head. He's like, Master, and, and Revan's got his hand on his chest, on, across his heart, and he's leaned over. I feel it. I feel it. And of course, the seers, they're all feeling it too. But I want to go back to the, to the moment when we see the, the courageous in the fleet. That is such a beautiful panel. Courageous is center scene, and there's all the fleet around it. They all got a blockade around Sororico, Sororico, or however you're going to say the word. Now, the next panel right below that, this is interesting, Nathan. It's the bridge of the ship. And you'll notice that past the Admiral, there's this open gap. Now, when you go to the next page, there's like this beam and stuff. There's all this little details of the inside of that. Go two more pages forward, and you see where where the Admiral's saying, do it fast. I still want a tactical. I still want you at tactical when the Mandy's show up. He's standing. They're still at the bridge. He's still at that same no location. But that like little beam thing that kind of looks like a Bakta tank that I don't know what the heck it is, but it, oh, it looks like a pocket tank. You now see it from a different angle, and there is a open spot 
in there where it looks down below on the fleet. It's just a really interesting bridge layout. Uh, you know, and, and looking at that where you can see through and down below, it's curious because you see the two guys, they're they're in their seats and they got these like little slide things. It's like it's curious that there's no floor below them that they have to to, to navigate. They're sitting basically floating over space. It's it's the most strangest bridge setup I have ever seen. And then going back to the, to the picture of the courageous and seeing where that's located on the ship, how it's kind of like under the saucer and kind of where that fin comes down. It's above that and kind of between two engine nacelles. Really interesting design. And these are the kind of little tiny things that I'm always kind of picking up on. And then there's another moment there when you look above that scene where the two guys are sitting in front of the Bakta looking thing. Karth is saying, I'll, I'll do that. I'll spend enough time working there. I think I remember the way. There's a ship that almost, almost looks like the ship that we later would play in KOTOR in the background just zipping about. I, I just, I'm, I'm always paying attention to those little details and stuff, and it's really cool. So, you know, when you got all that kind of stuff and, and you're looking at the bridge, there's another scene, too, where they zoom in on it some more, and you can see exactly where the windows are. It says, uh, the courageous at the edge of Sircorin space, and then the, the, the talk speech says, uh, Mandalorian battle group from hyperspace admiral, just off the ecliptic, one dreadnought, several assault ships. But you can actually see the windows of the bridge and how that comes out in like a little triangular form and, and the way that the open dock is below it. Very, very curious stuff, but it's like, it's all right there. If you build the picture in your mind from panel to panel to panel and apply it. I mean, I, I remember getting the old uh, star Wars gamer magazines for ship layouts and stuff like that. Something I would love to see star Wars insider bring back. I loved all the different layouts of all the classic Carillion ships. And when this era came out, there were so many really cool, cool ships, the hammerheads, the cruisers, the Corvettes, I would love to see Insider bring back some layouts and stuff like that and see some of these really cool ships get, you know, featured in something like that. To me, I think what stands out with this episode, it's not the, I mean, the fleet has a lot of cool stuff in it. The fleet, uh, it's one of the bigger fleets we've seen in a Star Wars comic in a while to actually have them all showing up uh, in the panel, as opposed to focusing on maybe one ship amid a fleet, but having all the action taking place inside so we don't really get a feel for the scope of it all. Um, it's the the ending here, the last couple of scenes, or the last handful of scenes, that give us a sense that this is not over. This is very much sort of a, a third issue that while it ends this arc that's part of the broader arc, it's much more of an Empire Strikes Back kind of ending, uh, or a Revenge of the Sith kind of ending, than it is a positive ending like we would usually expect from an arc. Um, we see the explosions coming down onto the planet, and we briefly get two flashes to elsewhere in the galaxy. We see... Squint, a.k.a. Alec, a.k.a. eventually Malak, and Revan, whose face, of course, is covered, uh, on Cathar, where they are feeling the impact of this, you know, as if thousands of us have suddenly cried out in terror, blah, 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 blah. It's very much the Obi-Wan in A New Hope type of thing going on. Um, well, and we real see... Real quick with that, I, wanna, I got a question for you. Now, is this the moment that he is going to find the helmet, or has that not happened yet? Because Cathar... There was a huge massacre. The Mandalorians wiped out most of the people, and he took the helmet on that planet, right? Is that Or has that not happened yet? Or about to happen? Are we close to that event, or is that event still a ways out? No, that has not happened yet. Uh, that is going to happen after dueling ambitions uh, prior to the Masks storyline. So yeah, that oh. um, he's on Cathar. I mean, being there with... Uh, or at least being there with people who are from Cathar. I'm not sure if he's supposed to be on Cathar. Being there with people from Cathar... Uh, it's perhaps setting up what's coming, but yeah, as far as I can tell, uh, this is not directly tied into the, the mask scene. 
Um, what gets me, though, is we see uh, Canilla, or Canilia, uh, who is also one of the Covenant. And she is, uh, you know, she's feeling this. She's like, you know, what was that? Uh, Lucian calls to her over the, the comlink. Uh, that, that was what it feels like when a vision starts to come true. Talking about the visions of disaster. But she's there with some aliens. And I can't for the life of me figure out what these aliens are supposed to be. Um, they've got these really, really long eye stalks and these bizarre, like, kissy, kissy, big, like, comedically large lips. Uh, I'm not sure what they are supposed to be, but she's apparently there with some of these creepy, creepy aliens um, when she feels uh, It's a planet of evolved sea urchins. <laughs> Something. It's freaky looking. Um, but we, of course, find that this should be the moment that, that you know, it's vindicates Zane. You know, what what Zane says was going to happen has happened. He was telling the truth. Instead, we get lots of bad news kind of humped together. Uh, Not only are there huge casualties on the ground, only eight vessels, eight Republic vessels that were on the ground managed to escape. Uh, The little Vivoli, which we found out from a line from Slisk, didn't have enough fuel in it anyway to leave. Um, The little Vivoli is among the ships that have been uh, destroyed, apparently, on the planet, and, oh yeah, Zane, you're still a prisoner. Um, they're going to give you to the Jedi. Um, they don't know whether you're telling the truth or not. It doesn't matter if he's a traitor, a murderer, or just crazy. Um, Kareth isn't smart enough, he says, to know for sure, but he's going to be given over to the Jedi, whether they like it or not. The only, the only ray of hope as this story ends, and I think it's a great moment, uh, and kind of a sad moment as well, is when Zane is locked up, he's curled up in his blankets, and we find as it goes between uh, pages that he is crying, you know, there over what seems to be the death of Griff and the death of all those other people. Uh, Karth goes in to see him and says, um, I didn't get to tell you, I never got word to your Jedi friend. He was on a mission somewhere else, referring to Squint. Anyways, I was already there in the comm center, so I did something for old time's sake. You remember how I told you I used to call up a Starob City and send the people to their underground shelters with a bogus tornado warning? Well, it still works. You called it City? No, he answers. I called 17. Um, basically, he used that opportunity to try to get them underground in hopes that maybe, just maybe, if they can't evacuate, they get deep enough underground that this assault isn't going to kill them. Granted, you know, it's a nuclear weapon thing, so the fallout's still going to be there. But maybe, just maybe, it's a chance to save these people. Um, and it says, I don't know whether to believe you, but I saw how you treated that Starob, and I guess I figured I'd sent them underground for less. I hope if it comes to it, somebody would play the same joke on my family. Hang in there, Zane. And we immediately, and I don't know if this is in the trade paperback, but we immediately get the Terrace Holofeed Siege Edition the little news-type product, after that, in the individual single-issue comic. And it is in there (sighs) that we are realizing that the bombardment of terrorists is already happening. Um, Uh And we know that, of course, Karth comes from Talos, that's often confused with terrorists, um, but we know that eventually Karth's family is going to wind up being killed by a bombardment. Um, so the fact that he's saying, you know, I've just saved these people from bombardment, you know, I would hope that maybe someday we'll do that same for my family, 
You know, it's mm-hmm. it's a gut wrenching moment if you're familiar with the character of Carthonassi, but it's certainly well, not a positive ending by any stretch of the imagination for this arc. He also, when they first met at the mess, he goes, "I should be back on Telos with my family right now," but the onslaught pretty much ruined my leave. So yeah, there's that moment too. I I didn't know I I have the trade, so I it's not installed in here. I did not know that that was going on. So you just informed me of something new. The the for me, you know, you mentioned how it has the Empire Strikes Back moment. That last panel where it shows Zane, he's sitting in the bunk. There's a a, a bulkhead window, uh, transparent steel looking out. You can see the fleet. You can see the moon. Uh, Zane's in the bed, the blanket. He's faced away towards the wall. He's been crying. And you see that the, the doorway is open and lights coming in, casting light in the doorway. And it casts a shadow of Karth and Nassi across Zane. And he says, hang in there, Zane. That one scene to me could have worked as a cover. That is, uh, that, I don't know. There's not much to it. There's a simplicity there, but there is beauty in the simplicity. I, I don't know what it is about it. It just, it, it's a really beautiful, powerful moment. And there's nothing really going on to it. Aside from everything that's led to that moment. And I don't know. I, I mean, something about it just speaks to me. I really like that. That's a great panel. I'd love to see that as a painting, maybe. And with that, we basically end what is the first arc out of four that make up this this maxi arc. The Days, Nights arc. Um, I must say, as much as they were hyping this up going into it, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. Um, and I still, looking back on it, find it um, an oddity in all of what we get with Knights of the Old Republic. Because Knights of the Old Republic in and of itself felt like one much larger story. Uh, to have these singled out as one big, you know, kind of longer story in the midst of it, and yet um, have it be such different settings for each of the four parts of it still kind of feels a little odd to me looking back on it. But certainly a very strong arc, uh, and one that I would definitely recommend to folks to go back and reread. But of course, in this case, you're not going to get nearly the impact out of it, I don't think. Um, if you haven't read the previous issues, this very much is a uh, let's gonna let's take all these smaller threads that have been laid out in previous arcs and let's start pulling them together or at least start bringing them more to the forefront so you can see what we're doing with it so that we can pull it all together into a knot, so to speak, as Straczynski says much later on. But definitely one that I would check out, even given the fact that it's got that weird thing where it goes from Dustin Weaver to Brian Ching and then back to Dustin Weaver again. I don't think the art changes are enough to throw us off. Uh, not even how on the cover of issue number 15, Zane looks like he is a child of Jay Leno. Uh, it's, it all works fairly well. <laughs> yeah. It has like an episode one feel, uh, you know, looking at it from the aspect of the trade and, and looking even beyond just one trade, but going from, you know, tr- volume three to volume four as a one cohesive story. Uh, you know, this first part could be separate. I mean, it, it, at this point, when you go off the cover of volume three, it doesn't really feel like it fits, but it does fit in the aspect of a first chapter, uh, like episode one. You know, you've got the setting up of things. Uh, the, the downside with episode one being that, you know, things aren't as hunky dory in the galaxy as we thought, that it isn't such a perfect utopia anymore, that darkness is creeping in. In this case, you see the darkness come full force and it sets up that Empire Strikes Back feel to the end of that first chapter, which sets us up for some great arc action in the next part uh when we go into the end of volume three as we will later kick into volume four of kotor this story is a, is a powerful one and i mean i i just imagine you know as these books and trades and stuff as each new volume comes out you get the omnibuses and all stuff uh, a book of this would be really fun to read sometime just sit down and read it all at once 
But I will say, though, uh, we haven't really hit it all that much. If we talk about cover art real quick, um, and I know we got a whiner on on iTunes reviews talking about how they talk about the art too much. Well, Sparky, in a comic book, the art is a big part of telling the story. Um, and it's it's part of the evolution of Star Wars comics, as you see if you watch my uh, From the Star Wars Library video series on YouTube, especially dealing with things like um, the way we move through the different art styles and such of the uh, the Marvel comics that never quite looked like the characters. But anyway, um, the I find the, the series of covers very odd for this. Uh, the cover for 15 is incredible, minus the Jay Leno chin um, for Zane. That is pretty cool, and it's not really giving away anything because the vision that he has... Uh, is the vision that he had back in the, the second part. So they're showing us a vision from the first part, presumably about to come true or maybe coming true in the third. And because of, there's that maybe aspect to it, because we did see this as a vision, I think that works without being extremely spoilerish if you've read the second part. But the cover to the second part, issue 14, makes no sense because you've got Griff there with LB that are now going to come two completely different places. LB is with The Last Resort, um, whereas Griff is with uh, the little Bivoli, and the first issue, number 13, says, In the Sights of an Assassin Droid. And it shows Zane and Jeriel in their looks that went from when they were fighting each other, sparring with each other, with an Assassin Droid in the front. And aside from the fact that, obviously, that gives you the impression that both of them are going to fight the Assassin Droid, um, that blows the surprise of the final panel of the issue. Because HK-24 is coming out of his container and finally shows up where we can see him in the very last image of the comic. It's the big shocker at the end, and yet they've given it away on the cover. I found that to be somewhat of a boneheaded decision for the cover art of number 13. Not talking the style of it, but simply the choice of revealing it on there. It's kind of like when they revealed a big plot spoiler of uh, one of the, the uh, Fate of the Jedi books in their own a back cover text about the Jedi did such and such with Natasi Dalla. Well, that's great, but they don't do it until halfway through the stinking book, and you just blew it in your solicitation text. Good job. Well, I think I think that they were playing off the fact that he looks so much like HK-47 that by throwing him on the cover, people might oh, yeah. assume. Because that was what I thought. I mean, I was like, oh, what's this? An assassin droid? But, but yeah, it was a little odd to make it the last you know panel, but... I still think it's a glorious cover, <laughs> which we'll get more into covers as we reach the next issue. Uh, you know, we always do that quick rundown of covers at the end now. Uh, talk about wrapping up episodes. This wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you guys and gals once again as we ponder on sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on iTunes and Stitcher. We really encourage uh, reviews on iTunes as well. Happy, bad, glad, or sad, we don't care. We take them all. Uh, you can also find links to our episodes on Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. No matter how you get there, though, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions or questions about the new shows, TVs, movies, anything out there Star Wars at all, fire off. You can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. And really quick, we're going to mention that we are building up towards our 100th episode. And so that is the place you're going to want to send off all your comments and stuff for our 100th feedback episode as we get closer to that lastly before we go we wanted to mention you our audible trial if you go to www.audibletrial.com slash star wars report you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about 
you can get yourself one free book. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles that you can explore. You can explore the expanding universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. That's right, and of course, also be sure to check out the Facebook page for the Star Wars Timeline Gold. It's SW Timeline Gold, Facebook.com slash SW Timeline Gold. You can check out the YouTube channel, of course, uh, YouTube.com slash user slash Chrono Radio. If you're going to go and check out from the Star Wars Home Video Library or from the Star Wars Library, those video series that I put out there. Uh, you can also check out the Amazon store that Jody, my wife, and I run. is Amazon.com slash shops slash Lil Joe Collectibles, L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all as one word. Uh, and of course, if you are still wanting to help out with that insane financial situation that we have at the moment with all the medical bills piling up, uh, I post updates about that on the Facebook page. We'll talk about it perhaps another time soon, uh, though it's mostly good news at this point as we await January and such. Um, you can also still help out with that if you like. Uh, donations can be sent to Nathan at StarWarsFanWorks.com through PayPal. Uh, at this point, the community has managed to raise um, over $1,200 at this point to help us with that insane 12 grand uh, medical bill and whatnot that is coming. Uh, I'm very appreciative of that, um, but I don't want to take up too much episode time with it each time around. So thank you all, of course, and um, if you want to help, uh, we certainly could still use it. Every little bit helps out here, uh, but we are very, very grateful to those who've helped so far. And speaking of help, if you want to help the Star Wars Report website and the other podcasts, you can help us all directly by going to www.starwarsreport.com support or follow the link at the bottom of the Star Wars Report episode post. So once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that this series will manage to continue not over-sexualizing Jeriel. That was my odd! I was just going to say that! <laughs> I was going to say, what are the odds that Jarrell's going to get to be a five-star, triple-A model, triple-something? <laughs> what's the uh, what's the line from a Dark Helmet? You lose! <laughs> Missed it by that much! <laughs>